Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Okay, hi, welcome back to the second part of our Faust series. As you may recall last time, the main question we left off with was whether Faust was going to be able to use his newfound knowledge furnished by the demon Mephistopheles to figure out a way to trick the devil and avoid being dragged body and soul to hell. And so that's what we're that's a question we're going to answer this episode. The structure of the book, roughly speaking, runs like this. We have some bio on Faust. We have his deal with the devil. We have the, the deal that he has 24 years of demonic assistance and power and knowledge. And then he will give up body and soul. We have him getting to know more about the demons, this really tough situation he's in. He gets to learn more about hell and how it works, or, or maybe it's, yeah, we'll see. And then we get into his misadventures. Faust is essentially a scammer, a trickster. In the deal, he's supposed to be an enemy to humankind and divinity and Christians most especially. To my mind, he's mostly an enemy to other sorcerers and other tricksters. So that's sort of an interesting tension. So we have a sequence of his scams, a sequence of him going famous places like Istanbul and all over Germany and Europe and meeting famous people. And then we get to the denouement of the entire Faust book. So that's that's the structure we're going to cover. We've covered, obviously the deal, and getting to know a little bit about his situation. So I'm going to start off with a sampling of some of the middle parts. of. So a part I liked early on was Faust's introduction to a bunch of the seven princes of hell. He's hanging out in his parlor one day, and a demon appears. And it's like, Faust, I know you've been curious. You want to meet the big princes of hell. And it's no problem. They're with me right now. They're all right here. And Faust like looks around. Okay, like where are they? And the devil's like, uh, they're just outside. Just wait a second. It kind of reminds me of like teenagers or something. This devil who's talking, who's identified as Belial, a demon we were familiar with from episodes on the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, and, and the New Testament and Hebrew Bible. This devil is described as looking like a giant black bear, coal black. And it says that the only thing that wasn't black on him were his ears, which stood up straight and were bright red, burning red. And he had really long white teeth. And close to his neck, he had three wings. It's the middle of the summer. It's hot. It's hot in Saxony in the summer. But when he shows up, it's as if there's like a really cold blast of air it's constantly going, and Faust thinks he's going to freeze when he's hanging out with this Belial bear person. The other seven are different names for Satan. Like Satan is one of them, Lucifer is another. You get this, I get a bunch of, of, of like names that you, you would commonly see associated with the devil. 
and they all look like these sort of messed up monster animals. Like Lucifer looks like a giant squirrel. And I found it curious that the devil, like all these names for the devil, they, the devil's like carved up into seven different people in this. Now I'm going to get to find the names. And just by the way, the seven names are Satanus, Satan, Belial, Lucifer, Dithicanus. Have to look into that one. Anubis. Anubis. Just going for Egyptian mythology now. There was a dragon who was described as the last one. So Dracus. So yeah, that's that's who we're dealing with. And and they're just sort of carved up. It reminds me a little bit of the beginning of Paradise Lost. Milton does a similar thing. So that's that's sort of worth noting. And so Faust is like, why do you have to come in the appearance of these sort of freaky looking animals? And the, the princes of hell are like, those are just the rules. And so then he's like, well, okay, you all look like, you know, you're a dragon, you're a big dog, bear, like a squirrel, Lucifer, Lucifer the squirrel. And he's like, well, why don't you look like other kinds of animals? Like, what about insects and things like that? And they're like, oh, we do use those. Of course, insects, swarming animals. Of course, we use those to help spread plagues and make human beings miserable. Of course. And so he's like, okay, well, can you take that form? And they're like, we'll do it for you right now. And so they turn into leeches and spiders and beetles and gnats and mosquitoes. And they all just attack him at once. And he has to run out of his little parlor and they disappear right then. So again, just another story to really reiterate that Faust is, has gotten in bed with the wrong, the wrong kind of people. So in terms of the genre of like a spirit coming and asking Faust if he wants to see something, Mephistopheles comes to Faust one night and he's like, would you like a tour of hell? And Faust is like, I guess so. And uh, Mephistopheles sends Beelzebub to come give him a ride. And like Beelzebub is like his steed. Like he's sort of like this weird, strange flying beast. And he pulls a cart for Faust in a saddle like made of bones or something like that and in these old German books there are often marginalia commentary running along sometimes and this one says that Faust is is dreaming like he's fallen asleep and for me this is a key detail because like you know I kept wondering whether Faust was going to use his knowledge to trick the devil and get out of the bad deal we're seeing how it's the knowledge he's getting, the experiences he ha- he's having thanks to these demonic privileges are far from reliable. So anyway, he's flying through the air for a long time and he sees these fiery cliffs of a burning mountain, which may be a reference to the mountain on fire from Revelation 8 based on Mount Vesuvius, the, you know, the exploding volcano. And it's so funny to me that Vesuvius is the name of the restaurant and Sopranos. Just like, you know, on the one hand, it shows how like sort of naive and ignorant the characters are to be like, oh, it's, this sounds great and it's historic. And it's like, guys, it's something that's going to blow up in your faces. So that, that's, that's, that just stands out to me. So he goes to the burning mountain 
and there's all kinds of monsters to greet him. And he's attacked by flying deer. Man, he must be in Pennsylvania or something. He has to deal with giant snakes. These snakes come after him, but he's defended by other dragons. But then he keeps like falling off his cart and falling further and further and further. It really is like a dream into these pits of lava. And at one point, he's like in a, the lake of fire from also from Revelation. And he sees all these kings and emperors and warlords and generals there. And some people are able to get out and cool off in like a lake or pool nearby. And it's almost like the kind of situation when you're at a spa where there's a hot tub in the sauna and a, and a icy pool and you can kind of go between them. A little confusing. Maybe a clue that this is a dream. So Faust gets a ride out of this hellhole, as it were, and he wakes up in his own bed and he's pretty shaken. And he's like not sure whether any of that was real or just a vision from the devil to fool him and mislead him. And he's like, I'd still probably rather not end up in that situation, whether it's real or not. And this is one of the first places in the book where it makes this point that Faust wrote this in his own hand. You're trying to create a kind of like historicity effect. Like the text says that Faust wrote this part down. It must be true, right? So as I mentioned, the middle part of the book consists of Faust's amazing trips around the world, his adventures scamming people, meeting famous people, finding treasure, sort of building up his love life, partying and all that. It seems like instead of trying to use his powers to get out of the deal, Faust is sort of taking the easy way out. He's failing the marshmallow test. In other words, he is using the fun parts of having a demon familiar and not trying to do the hard work of getting himself back into good graces with, with God. So I'm going to go through a few examples of Faust and his scams. At one point, Faust is partying, gambling, drinking, and he borrows money from a Jewish moneylender so he can go about his business. But then he can't pay the moneylender back, or at least he pretends that he can't. Eventually, the lender comes calling for the vig, and Faust uses sorcery to create the illusion that he's cut off his leg to give as a pledge. In, you know, for security on the debt. The lender is at first like, okay, crazy, takes the fantasy leg away. Then he's like, finally, he's like, what am I going to do with this? This is gross. He throws it off a bridge, disgusted. So shortly thereafter, Faust, I guess, pretending to hobble on one leg, turns up with the money he owes. But of course, the lender doesn't have the leg. So he has to pay Faust for the damages. He has to basically give Faust all the money back that he that he lent, and probably even more so. Of course, it was all an illusion anyway. So of course, we also have the anti-Semitic traces of Jewish moneylenders here. 
And I think the anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism of the text is supposed to carry this concept forward that Faust is an enemy of Christianity, but only insofar as he's able to outmatch other enemies of Christianity in treachery. So another example of Faust going all Dexter, you know, the, the series, I actually have never watched, of the serial killer who kills other serial killers. In this case, he's like going after other sorcerers. Faust is at, is in Frankfurt, and there's a big exhibition fair going on, like trade fairs. There are a lot of trade fairs in Frankfurt. And he hears that in the Judengasse, the, the sort of the Jewish alley, I guess, there are four sorcerers who have a little trick going. They cut off each other's heads and have the heads sent to the barbershop where they're trimmed. And Faust observes this and observes that they have a reputation for doing this. And he gets angry because, as the text says, he thought he was the only rooster in the devil's chicken coop. And so he goes and starts spying on these guys. And then he observes that when the heads are cut off, there is a little pot with lilies in it that spontaneously sprout and grow roots of life and blossom. And that the heads are depending on this blooming effect to be kept safe. So like the, the head needs the flower to bloom so it can be like still alive and then put back on the body. So when the person's head is replaced back on the body, the lilies and the blossoms droop and disappear. And this is like how they keep getting away with this, this interest. I don't know if they're making, how they're making money on this. They're just like magic flexing or something. So Faust is jealous and cruel. And so he cuts up the lilies when one of these wizards has had their head cut off and like just mangles all the flowers. And so then the person's head dies and can't be put back on the body. So yeah, nice one, Faust. Really, really sensitive move. So we've seen Faust the fighter. How about Faust the lover? He has this kind of entourage of young people around Wittenberg who party with him and drink with him. And they seem like basically decent people. It's I wonder if they're sort of just a little curious about his eccentricities or what. And so they're talking about who is the most beautiful woman in the world and how they'd like to see Helen of Troy because... She, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships and all that. And so Faust leaves the parlor, leaves the tavern where they're drinking, and tells him not to follow him outside. And then he comes back in with a beautiful woman, Helen of Troy. Everyone is totally mystified on the verge of falling in love. But the text says that the rutting feeling, the horniness basically, departs the moment they can tell that she's a bit of a spirit. But they want to paint a picture of her. And it seems like someone manages to do this, but they don't really know. It's unclear at this point who did. And the narrator sort of abruptly concludes that the point of this is that the devil is constantly trying to use things like love to be a trap. Later in the book, when Faust is getting closer and closer to his date with destiny and he's getting anxious about that and the demons are like, we got to keep this guy happy. He actually gets Helen of Troy to come live with him. She comes back and she lives with him and she's his concubine and he's, he's totally infatuated and in love and they have a child together whose name is Eustace and the child would tell Faust 
he would basically, you know, predict the future for him accurately. He would prophesy for him. And the text at this point mentions that when, when Faust dies, it doesn't say the circumstances, but when he dies, the both uh, Helen of Troy and the child disappear with him. So there's some collateral damage afoot. It seems like Helen of Troy is a key figure in Faust's life. And it's interesting, like he ends up with this beautiful mythological figure who's also the cause, obviously. The cause, you know, depending on how you want to read the Trojan War, there isn't exactly peace and prosperity that follows in her wake. We'll just say that. So that seems to be gesturing towards something. But Faust is not exactly the monogamous type. In other moments, the text says that the devil provided Faust with seven succubi who attended to all of his needs throughout the remainder of his life for years, apparently. And they were... Some of them were supposed to look like Dutch women. Some were from Franconia, some from Bavaria, some from Hungary. You get the picture. It's supposed to be like this menagerie of beautiful women from Mitteleuropa. Faust is like able to conjure beautiful women from the past. There's another story of Faust running into the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who, upon realizing that this is the great sorcerer, Dr. Faustus, requests an audience with none other than Alexander the Great. So this happens in the city of Innsbruck. And Charles V thinks that contemplating the figure, the form of Alexander the Great would do him some good because he's thinking about his own ancestry, his own place in the annals of history and the, the sort of stacking up against the greats, of, the greats of the past, like Alexander. He's worried about his future, He's worried about how to pass on his legacy. And Alexander had a problem with this too. He, you know, his empire gets split up into these different Hellenistic kingdoms. Anyway, maybe it's also something we're going to see with, with Charles. And so, yeah, he thinks that some sort of contact from beyond the grave with Alexander would do him some good as he's trying to, trying to figure this out. Faust explains to Charles V that he can't bring anyone back from the dead but that Mephistopheles, his spirit, can mimic the image and form and spirits of these dead figures very well because he's observed them very closely. So the same sort of thing happens. Faust leaves. He comes back in with Alexander. And a detail I liked was that Alexander's eyes are, are sort of blazing basilisk eyes. And Charles V wants to test and make sure, is this really the guy? And he'd heard that the real-life Alexander had warts on the back of his neck. And so he sneaks up, checks on it, and lo and behold, it's true. Interesting detail that Faust is like, you can't talk to Alexander the Great. Like, you can't, you know, and you might imagine, like, well, what's the point of this? You would think, like, Charles would be like, I want to talk to this guy and get some tips for how to handle my situation. And I wonder if there's some sort of assumption, maybe that like just contemplating the form of this, this, this really successful emperor could pass on some sort of wisdom or technical skill or just like sort of give him some juice. The text compares what's going on here to the story of King Saul and the witch of Endor from the book of first book of Samuel chapter 28. And so this is a moment when um, Saul has this woman with spiritual powers br bring the prophet Samuel back from the dead. 
and saw, you know, saw like Charles is trying to get some advice on how to govern, how to rule, how to strategize. And the prophet is just like, you're going to lose to the Philistines. And then King David's going to take over. And it's just interesting. Like Alexander doesn't say any of that to Charles, but he is probably pretty close to the point in his life when he abdicates the throne and retires to a monastery in Spain and, and dies shortly thereafter. Okay, so now we're getting into the final act. We're 24 years in the future from when the fireball fell in the woods and the guy paced around the magical circle. So the beginning of this section shows us how Faust is creating a last will and testament and how he's leaving everything or at least a lot to his, his assistant Wagner, who the text describes as once being a beggar and it's like very, very dismissive and judgmental about that. So he's, you know, sort of rags to riches. He's getting all this property. This part also, when it goes into the property details, gives a lot of detail about where Faust lives. It says he lived in Wittenberg by the Ganzers, by Veit, Veit Rudinger's house, in the Schergasse, by the Ringmauer, by the city wall. And the point, I think, is to show how much money and property Faust had arrived at through his misbegotten trade and expertise. And it all included riches from across the world, like from the court of the Pope, from the Sultan, and he mentions like these silver dining sets in particular. And of course, these things like sort of represent like the apex of worldly evil, cosmic enemies from the point of view of a a pious German Lutheran. Wagner doesn't only want the property, he wants the magical power. He wants uh, Faust's uh, Geschicklichkeit, I think he's, he puts it. He wants them that juice. And Faust's like, don't worry, my son. I'm going to set you up with your own spirit. You're going to get your own spirit who's going to try to get you to sell your soul to the devil. Aren't you happy to hear that? And Wagner's like, yes, 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 yes. And Faust's like, he's going to take the form of an ape. Can you imagine? Just like you're being you're being served by the demon ape. I caught a cold. I coughed on all my friends. Now everyone is coughing on everybody else. And we're coughing on our doctors. And our doctors cough out. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. This all goes up. This all comes about. Comes together. And then again, a lot of the theme of this is Faust depression. It's all started. The walls are starting to, you know, closing around him. He doesn't want to talk to Mephistopheles. He wants to be alone. And he starts going into these poetical psalms and reflections about his own suffering and the suffering he's anticipating in hell. He's just like really stressed. It's one of the, it's some interesting, you know, the end, there's these moments of, of verse and, and sort of more poetical language that I found really striking. There's also some ironic references to the freedom of the will and the freedom of the will. We, I haven't, you know, we have, we we're still making our way through the middle ages. And so we haven't gotten to the reformation, but the freedom of the will was a big stumbling block in, in the reformation and reformers like Martin Luther and, and John Calvin would come to the view that the freedom of the will with regard to matters of salvation is illusory. A little complicated with the Faust tale, since 
part of the point of the Faust tale is that he does make a choice. He is he's seduced into it, but he he deliberately makes this compact with the devil. And so to say there's no freedom of the will makes it a little bit tricky to interpret that. I mentioned this is a part of the text where we get into, there's a more versical quality to it. Mephistopheles starts coming around and just like mocking Faust. And it's some very strange verse that's kind of hard for me to make out, but it all rhymes and has this sort of diabolical, creepy nursery rhyme feel to it. This is what Mephistopheles says in rhyme. Weißt du was so schweig? Ist dir wohl so bleib? Hast du was so behalt? Unglück kommt bald. Darum schweig, leid, meid und vertrag. Dein Unglück keinem Menschen klag. Es ist zu spät an Gott verzag. Dein Unglück läuft herein all Tag. And it, it goes on like that. There's a part about like, don't try to eat cherries with big lords and the devil. You're going to get like the pit thrown back in your face. Things like this. It's it's really, it's kind of funny. It's, it would almost be funny, but it, it is so sinister. And just to sort of loosely translate what I what I just read, like, you know, it's basically like, be quiet. Like, it's not worth complaining. Keep it to yourself. Your misfortune is coming soon. Don't don't complain about what's going to happen to you to anyone. No one cares. It's too late to go to God. That sort of thing. Of course, that it sounds a little bit better when it rhymes in German. But you get the picture. So, yeah, I mean, he's basically just telling Faust, you're fucked. You know, that's that's basically what's going on here. And so what follows is a lot of Faust's whining and complaining and just sort of just gnashing of teeth and giving himself totally over to depression. And it gets so bad that Mephistopheles seems almost to feel bad for him. He comes back and he's like, don't worry. There's hell and then there's hell. You're going to be close to the big guy. The devil looks after his his followers. Like you might even get a special body and soul that's not going to feel the flames quite as much as other people. And like, you can imagine just like you're facing this impossible situation and you're just like looking for anything, any silver lining. You're just looking for it. And that's where Faust is in this situation. And I wonder like this whole idea that like there's, there's different levels and different extremes of pain in hell sounds very much like Dante's Inferno. And I wonder if maybe there's a little bit of that influence percolating. Faust manages to rally. He was really depressed, but maybe this was like reassuring. I don't know. He's going to go out with a bang. He's going to party. You know, it's like Prince 1999. So he gets a bunch of his entourage, the young students and friends, and they go out to a tavern the night of the 24th or the, the day before the 24th, the day before the night when everything's going to go down. So they eat, they're eating, they're drinking. And Faust is like paying for everything. He's throwing money around. And he's like, please just like, we're, we can keep doing this all day and night. Just come home with, come, come keep following me from tavern to tavern and we'll, we'll have fun. And they're getting pretty rowdy. And at one point during the night, he's like, I need like to do a final toast with you. Like this is, I, I keep rem- being reminded of, of when Bilbo disappears from his birthday party in Fellowship of the Ring. But, you know, he's like, this is what, this is the situation I'm in. I've had a good run for 24 years, but the devil's coming for me tonight. So if you hear any noise, you hear a racket, 
If you hear me shrieking bloody murder, don't worry. Don't get up. Don't try to do anything. He's like, it's so strange. He's like trying, and the text is like, Faust is trying to not show panic. He's trying to save face. He's trying to fake it till he makes it. Then comes this moment where Faust confesses that he's at once a bad and a good Christian. He's a good Christian because he is clear in this moment. Unlike how he is with, with Wagner, he's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be like me. I'm a bad influence. You should cling to God as hard as you can. You know, he, he, he's almost doing, and this is, this is like the, the role, this is the job of the text itself. He's doing a kind of do, his duty by being this frightful example, something to the opposite of emulation. Something that was interesting in this part where he's like, this is my fault, but the way I fell into the situation was through bad company, or what it says in German is Böse Gesellschaft. And when I first read it, I'm like, is he being passive aggressive with his friends? Is he like, is it, it's like your rowdy lifestyle that's gotten me into this problem? But he comes back to the theme of Böse Gesellschaft later, and he seems to mean like the company of evil spirits who are arguably obviously the ones who who got who sort of talked him into this this problem he's like i'm a bad christian because i haven't done any christian stuff for a long time i know i don't deserve any help and my only hope against hope apart from the whole hierarchy of hell and levels of pain thing is that god's gonna have mercy on me and the devil's just gonna get my body and not my soul and i just you know that's that's the that's the plan Different parts as he's as he's explaining all this, it, the text says that he's he becomes worried that, and this sort of relates to him being a bad Christian. He worries that his his text and his his writings about his adventures are going to hurt his chances almost of 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 God helping him. Like they they show too much because they're too crass and crude. So he, the the young people who are with him like hear him tell this story. And they're sort of astonished. They're like, you traded your body and soul away so you could like live it up and get drunk and fly around and do some stupid, stor- stupid sorcery. What the hell were you thinking? Why didn't you just tell someone? We could have helped you. We know like theologians and stuff. It's Wittenberg. We could have gotten you help. And there's a story that Faust recounts that is also earlier in the text where one of his neighbors tries to get him to turn away from sorcery and consorting with the devil. And Faust listens to him. And when I first read it, I'm like, Faust is going to like stick him in the head with a knife or something. But Faust is just like nodding. It's like, you make some good points there. I'm, I'm sorry, this, this makes sense to me. And he goes home full of intention to start, you know, reading Martin Luther's Bible and starting to, you know, tread the, you know, straight and narrow. And the devil shows up and he's like, I'm going to make you feel pain if you keep messing around with me like this Faust it's gonna hurt bad and so he says that's how he explains it. like I, I've tried I've thought about it I couldn't find a way out and even when I tried to be good every time I tried to be good the devil would send a succubus or would come and threaten me and they're just like there's nothing we can do man <laughs> like you are out of time but he's like all right you know it's time to go to bed I hope you guys have a really nice peaceful rest but I'm going to have a really terrible night. And I bet that put them right at ease. So they go to bed and Faust is like determined to keep his stiff upper lip and not embarrass himself in his final moments. Obviously none of these friends of his can sleep. They're just 
waiting. They're like, what is going to happen? And in the middle of the night, all this wind blows up. Like a storm is going to tear the whole tavern to pieces. And the doors are rattling and flying open. And everyone hears this horrible sound coming from Faust's room. As if the room is filled with snakes and serpents and, and monsters. And the students start to hear Faust's muffled screams and cries for help. As if he's being murdered. These friends are just too terrified to do anything. It just it's, it's too much. And it reminded me of this thing that Martin Luther says, that when you die, you die alone. None of your friends are going to be there to help you. But maybe not entirely alone when you're being murdered. In the morning, they go into the room. And the, in the text, it's sort of like grimly humorous. It's like, Faust wasn't there. You're like, oh, okay. All right, he's not there. You know, except... The whole room was sprayed with blood. Brains are on the floor. His teeth are scattered about. And then they find the rest of the body by a pile of manure just outside, totally mutilated. There isn't any, well, Faust disappeared mysteriously. He didn't slip on the magic ring and go off to Rivendale, you know? They bury Faust. They go back to his house and they tell Wagner that something terrible has happened. Shortly thereafter, Helen of Troy and the son... Eustus vanished mysteriously, and the friends and the local authorities find Faust's writings and start to put everything together, putting the pieces together. They're compiling them. They're finding all these parts that Faust, the, the text says that Faust wrote in his own hand. And everyone is too freaked out to live there, which I find a little funny because it's not as if the murder happened here. But one of the things that the text makes clear, and I don't think I touched on this enough last time, is that one of Faust's big sins, according to the book, is that he invited the devil to come and stay with him. Like the devil, the devil is his house guest. The devil's at home with Faust. And so the house itself is, is too uncanny to hang out in. And the text, you know, if, if you've ever read Freud and, and you sort of, you've heard that or some like, you know, psychoanalytic theory that, you know, Das Unheimliche is, is, is a word that it's tossed around. And the text, the, the text of, of the Faust book here does use the adjective Unheimlich to describe the vibe in Faust's fancy Wittenberg residence. And just to be clear, Unheimlich could be translated as unhomelike. So that kind of brings the point home, as it were, of uh, what's going on with Faust's house. And then the it just sort of offhandedly mentions that sometimes his spirit would come and float around outside the window and tell Wagner secrets and haunt Wittenberg. And it, it sort of, it sort of ends there. It ends with, you know, this sort of admonition to the Christian reader to, to mark well what has happened here and to never repeat the mistakes that, that Faust made. So this second episode in the Faust cycle wraps up our first works of Faustian literature. As we've seen, Faust doesn't use his knowledge, his skills, his connections to help himself. He's at once arrogantly brilliant and extremely myopic. And one of the ways the text accounts for this is that he was even possessed at the time of his decision-making. 
he was possess- he, there was a demon inside of him when he made his deal with the devil. And of course, that brings us back to the point about free will. Faust is dismissive and ironical when it comes to free will because how was that free will, right? And maybe you might say the whole point about Faust's lack of free will is it's just another way of saying you can't go it alone. You have to stay devoted. You have to stay churched. You have to stay on top of it. You got to manage those pious and impious feelings. That doesn't answer the question of what if you just can't? Next time on the Faust Beat, we'll see how this motley stack of dry rotting Fraktur German legends gets cleaned up and given dramatical form and unity in Christopher Marlowe's The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. That appeared or was composed pretty shortly after the initial appearance of, of this Faust book, which was apparently the, the, the barnstorming blockbuster of European book trade in the 1590s. So really looking forward to potentially having a special guest for that one. I'll, I'll leave that mysterious. And yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.